Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're reading verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. The man that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Now he has the honor of everything. He has under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to obey those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir to God. This is the word of the Lord. God, I just want to thank you for your word, and I thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I lift up all of those amongst us, and all of those who are homesick right now, we ask, Lord, that you would heal their bodies, and you would encourage them in hope of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to the word that tells us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. What a morning. It's interesting um, looking at all of what's gone on this week and all of the things that have transpired, people being sick. We've had to print so many times. Um, and if you don't know football references, what that means is we're just going to space out. Um, and so worship this morning has been kind of a series of punts. And uh, I think it's been fitting for the lot. Mm. We're taking a break from me preaching to the book of Ecclesiastes so that we can go into kind of this Christmas series. I don't typically preach through a typical series, but a few times a year we'll kind of take a break and jump into something different. And then we'll pick back up in Ecclesiastes sometime in January. And there's one other thing I want to go next to, and that is, and we'll work out how those things slides up. And we'll have a Christmas Eve service here, and we'll not be having Sunday services on Christmas Day. Now, I'm just going to tell you this. I like that. Okay? But we're not coming. So I'm not going to point. Yeah. <laughs> um, since we're going to do Christmas Eve on Saturday night, we're going to do a service on Saturday night, and not Christmas morning. Also, my family... Um, we have a house in East Boston, and if you are here and you have nowhere to go for Christmas, or you just want to come as a family, we do a Christmas breakfast every Christmas morning, you know, I'm in Brattle, there's the Bennett's, there's Martha Bell, there's all kinds of stuff, so you can just come in and leave, or you can come and make out of this, okay, so I want you to know that that's available on Christmas morning as well. Okay, um, when Joy came, when I was a kid, my parents, every Christmas morning, my dad read me this little book. And I remember it from the time I was pretty young. Um, it was called When Joy Came. And I'm not necessarily recommending the book, but it was a Christmas story. Um, it was very, the art and it was weird. And it was a little bit different. But every morning I woke up and I looked forward to, before we opened presents, my dad bringing out this kid's book and we read the Christmas story together. And uh, so when we were processing through what would be good this holiday season, this Christmas season, I was looking at, I was reminded basically of this idea of how happy I was and how joy-filled I was every Christmas when my dad read the story to me. And going through Ecclesiastes has been a little bit better. I've been hearing it. I think, man, 
this is this is tough. It's it's really heart wrenching. And so I'm gonna kind of take a shift emotionally here and get to celebrate a bit. And so this is the passage that, that came to mind first. Um, Paul writes this passage to the, the people in Galatia, and he begins by kind of bringing us into a situation that we all understand. So if you haven't turned that out of Galatians chapter 4, it says this, I mean that the heir of Rome who a child is no different from slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under the guardians and the managers until the death set by his father. So back in the day, this is what would happen. Um... Not, it's not unlike today, but it was a little bit more formal. Basically, the, the firstborn son was the heir, typically, of whatever the father of the family owned. And they kind of owned it because everybody knew that they were going to have, eventually, they were going to be either the landowner or have all the funds or whatever it was. Okay, so there was this, like, position that that firstborn son had, knowing that he was, like, Air okay? So, I don't know. I've been working through analogies with this, and so I know we have some people here from London, so please just bear with me if I get your history wrong, okay? Um, so, the Queen recently died, and from what I can see, Charles has been waiting a very long time to be king, okay? Like, so, in my lifetime, there's never been a king sitting on the throne in England. It's always been the Queen. I was wearing a little red cup listening to him sing, but not the King. Because I'm like, it's always been the Queen, right? Well, Charles has been waiting a very long time. Yeah, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. He knows it's probably coming. Well, he might have gotten to a point of something, but it's like, it's never coming. She's going to live forever. But he knows it's coming. The promise is there. He serves as the next person in line. Though he doesn't have it, yet, it's expected to be there. Okay? So, I think there's. There's ways that we can relate to this too. There's, what we're trying to describe here is there's always this hope that we can generate hope even in the most difficult situations, right? So, like Charles or whoever, whoever the heir is, we know that one day life's going to be different. There's hope in the future. I think the easiest way to, to maybe help us understand this is if you've been to that point, in your bank account, where you're like, I've got a week until payday. Right? Like, okay, we're, we're going to be getting ready for a week, and it's going to be tight, and the coffee, like, allowance is gone, but I just got to get through this week because I know that there's a paycheck coming. Like, it's there. It's not a hopeless situation because you know that something is going to go as far as the income comes in, we've all been in that situation like we haven't yet. You probably will be someday, right? And you just go, man, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm placing my hope in what's coming in the future because I know that it's going to be helpful. And so Paul introduces this passage by kind of bringing us into that scenario. And then he makes this switch into the spiritual because he's good at that. He says, in the same way, we ask when we were children we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So a spiritual kind of shift is what he's saying is, look, before we know Jesus, we're slaves to sin. He's going to use this analogy and this language in the next couple of passages. We're slaves to sin. We're stuck. We're, we're under the law. We're, we're living a life that is being 
we've got this verse, three fifteen, predated in John where the first gospel is preached, and it's basically a promise that an individual is going to come and our hope is going to be placed in that individual. And this is what Paul is going to kind of shift this into. It's hard to find joy in the moment when it feels like, okay, I'm basing myself, I'm basing what's coming, I'm basing my future on a hope that I'm not sure is actually going to work. Mm. You talk to people, and maybe this is you, I mean, at some point, I guess it's been me. They say, okay, if, if we're going to live on this standard of kind of a scale, then how good is good enough, right? Wouldn't it be horrible? At some point, if you show you died and somehow you face God and, and he's like, man, you were just one big dude short. You remember that time you didn't have that woman across the street? Like that, that was the moment. Like, I, f- I feel like trying to bank our life on a hope that's dependent upon us is really, really hopeless. And I tell us every week, dirty rotten sinners living in the same cursed world, struggling to figure it out, and constantly disappointing not only each other but ourselves. And yet, we keep trying to strive and work towards something to create a hope that isn't necessarily hopeful. With this analogy of a hope that's there, we takes it to a spiritual analogy to say if you're living, in this understanding of a performance-based salvation, is there really any hope? Then he moves into, well, we don't want to focus. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, but of them and then under the, under the law. I got in trouble not too long ago because I said I always like the butts in Scripture. Right? Um, but I think... As Paul is kind of describing this understanding of how we view hope and what our hope needs to be placed in, he he makes this transition to say in those moments when it feels hopeless, in those moments when you realize that putting your hope and trust in somebody else or yourself or another person is going to completely derail and disappoint you, God does something. But in the moment, in those, those moments that are just, man, is this hope really going to work out? I mean, even the paycheck analogy wouldn't be terrible if you said, I just got to get through this week and I've got this paycheck coming and then in the midst of that week you're let off. It's not even a solid hope. The company goes under, the check bounces. What Paul's going to describe to us here is a hope that never fails. And it's important to understand the theology behind this and why it's done the way that it's done. So it's like this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. The Christmas story begins way before Jesus' birth, but in this moment, We've got this promise that the world has been waiting for the Messiah. The world has been waiting for the Savior. The world has been attempting to live out this law that they can't possibly do. It's a constant reminder that we're a failure. Constant. 
There's a sacrificial system that's going on that isn't sufficient enough. It's kind of holding things at bay, but it's just a constant reminder that I can't, and this, there's no hope in this because I can't do what is expected of me. And then in the fullness of time, it says that God sends his son, the person in the Trinity, God himself, he is he comes and he becomes flesh. It says that he's born of woman. It's so important to understand this. Why does God have to be born of woman? Why does God have to have flesh on? Why is the incarnation so hopeful for us? Why does it bring so much joy? So God is with more than us. We don't like that, but it's accurate. It doesn't always work in our economy. It says in Scripture about the wages of sin is death. What we deserve from holding on to hope of ourselves or a system where the meaning of the trying to be good or a performance-based system that isn't able to take care of the sin that the world is death. We owe death. We sin. The wages of sin is death, and the old as a result of our sin is death. Because we sin against a perfect, holy, eternal God, then the punishment itself also has to be eternal. So in order for somebody to pay a death penalty for someone else, it's like, if, I mean, I don't even know if this works in the United States anymore. I know back in the day it did, where there's stories of like a son being convicted of a crime and the penalty was the death penalty and the father stepping in and saying, I'll take that for myself. And I don't don't know if that can happen anymore in in this country, but it used to happen. And they say, okay, a death death is owed, a penalty is owed, it has to be paid. Somebody has to pay it. So from a personal standpoint, we say, okay, we're all sinners, we've all blown it, we've all not met the standard by which God has asked us to, to, to live under the law that he's given, we owe a death penalty. So that means that we either have to pay it or somebody has to pay it for us. Jesus comes born of woman so that he can die for mankind. Jesus comes, God, becomes flesh so that he can die for all that would be saved. It's, it's this perfect balance between understanding that the cross, what Jesus does, is both personal and corporate. It's personal because as a man, a human being, he can die for me. It's corporate, and his value is much more than mine. He can die for all. And that's incredible to think about. So we have this this. God, who sends his son, sends God himself to become man so that he has the ability to represent man and die for the sins of mankind. It's beautiful. And then it says that he's not only come, but he's come and he was born under the law. Meaning, I, I don't know, I find this, I find this beautiful in the component that I don't understand God fully. We're never going to. We understand what God reveals to us at times, and even then, I'm still trying to figure it out. Right? 
I don't know why, I mean, if, I, if you're going to save the world, this probably isn't necessarily the way that you would pick to do it, right? You would pick novel stuff, I guess. The, the plan of God that was so perfect when you process, like, why he's done everything he's done and how it works in our finite minds, to say he, he literally sent Jesus to live under the law and fulfill the law perfectly so that God in his own righteousness and his own justice isn't just pushing the law aside and saying it doesn't have to be fulfilled anymore. So when he says that, when Paul is saying that Jesus was born human, flesh, he can represent mankind. When he is born under the law, he gets to actually live the life that we were supposed to live. And he does it with perfection. Meaning there's never sin. I don't understand that. It's everything that Jesus did from the time. I don't... I've processed trying to think, how do you raise that kid? Right? Like, I think Joseph and Mary are totally underrated. (laughs) Their son was perfect. Perfect. So when Jesus said something to his mom, it was never a lie. We know that Jesus had brothers and maybe sisters. We know that. How do you go from one child to the next? How would you like to be Jesus' younger brother? Mary looking at Jesus going, or James and just going like, why can't you be more like your brother? Well, let me tell you, he's God, and I'm not, right? He, he lives this perfect life. He, he never... Most, for, for us as Christ followers, we would choose to sin at times. But most of the sins that we end up being the most convicted of are probably the things that are going on in our heads that nobody sees. Right? You know, the scripture says you, don't, you can commit adultery just by having adultery in your heart. Right? Because it's, it's, sin is a matter of the heart. It's, you can hate someone in heart. And that's just as bad as killing them, Scripture says. Right? That, Jesus never did that. I, I'm blown away by this. I'm blown away that even the moment that he's on the cross and he's looking at the individuals who are killing him and torturing him, his response is, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus responds in every circumstance of his life the way that we're supposed to respond. When Jesus cleanses the temple in anger, that is supposed to help us understand how seriously God handles his church and access. When Jesus makes an analogy or confront someone, he's giving us perfect example of what that looks like. His emotions are always pure. His motivation is always perfect. When we say, you know, we say it kind of haphazardly at times when we're saying that Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live, he was born under the law and 
directed our preferences. We did what we can't do. I think that the, the weight of trying to grasp that is a little overwhelming. But when you think about what the purpose of Jesus coming was, and if you know him, then you know, okay, he came, let's make it personal, he came, and he lived the life that I was supposed to live, and then he took, he took this perfect being, and he says, I'm going to take the weight and the punishment of what your life deserves, and that's death. And that I am going to bear that burden for you. So a perfect sacrifice for you was given by Jesus, representing mankind, representing God eternal, and having lived in the life that fulfills the world perfectly. Some blood of one and blood under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Redemption. Redemption is a fun word. Um, the easiest way for us to grasp it is to think of purchase. If you know, I don't even know if this occurs anymore, but when I was a kid, we used to take all of these soda cans, right? My dad drank a lot of soda. And we would have like mounds of these soda cans, and then we would we would actually have Saturdays where we'd be like, okay, we're gonna crush the cans. And as a kid, this was cool. Because we would have this driveway and we would set up all the cans and then you would just kind of run and jump and crush them with your feet. And it was like crush, crush. It was very therapeutic. And then we would take them to a redemption center. And what it meant was we were gonna turn this in and they were gonna give me cash. And it wasn't a lot of cash, but it felt like a lot of cash when I was a kid, right? So redemption is like, I'm exchanging one thing for another. I'm purchasing one thing. I'm, I'm giving you the value of one thing for another. When Scripture says that Jesus came to redeem us, there's a lot of theology here, but in very simple terms, it, 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 it translates to, he came to purchase you. To buy you. To say, I'm going to pay the price that was owed. I'm paying the death penalty. It's fascinating that the financial, um, even lingo, that is on the cross, and he says, it is finished. It's, it's actually the word to tell us that it actually means paid in full. It's finished. It's paid the cost. It's over. He says, I, I, I left heaven, came to earth, took on flesh, lived under the law perfectly, died the death that you deserve so that your life can be redeemed and you no longer have to live under the law. What does that mean for us? It means that he abolishes this performance-based system completely. You are no longer living in the law. There is no longer a scale for you in Christ. The scale when Jesus died and you accepted him went this. It was just the perfect sacrifice was given for you. You're his life in exchange for yours. Well, Luther called this the great exchange, right? And so many different things. 
he takes our sin and we know sin so we might become the righteousness of God. It's, uh, I'm visual, so I often think, okay, I'm still living sin Christ body, sin Christ world, I sin, but I'm forgiven. And because that exchange has transpired when God the Father looks at me, who has accepted the gift of Jesus, he doesn't see a man who's living under the law and has failed. He sees me through the blood of Jesus, and it's like a filter. I don't know what a filter is. Because you have any phones. A filter changes the way something works. So he, he doesn't see an individual living under the law anymore who's failed to, to, to accomplish it and then therefore owes death. He, he looks at the individual who has accepted Christ and that gift and says, through the blood of Jesus, it's a filter. I see you clean. I see Jesus' righteousness imputed upon you. Therefore, there's not only no punishment, but there's actually some benefits. This is where hope has to be placed. When we process the Christmas story, one of the things we're talking about is like, okay, this hope. Your hope can be placed in you, and it's going to fail. Your hope can be placed in others, and it's going to fail. Your hope can be placed in something of the earth, like an inheritance, but ultimately it will fail. If you've been in here looking at Ecclesiastes, you realize that. But a hope placed in Jesus is 100% eternal and can never fail. Now, what I find fascinating is I even attempt to derail the hope that has come to me in Jesus by trying to bring back a performance-based system in my own life. Can I really be good enough to deserve what Jesus did? And the answer is no. He didn't do it because you were a good person. He didn't do it because you deserved it. Why did he do it? I don't know. He never did it to the people. It's, he completely abolishes this idea of saying, your salvation, your eternal security is based upon how well you perform. And that hope is eternal. It'll never, it'll never fail. It doesn't ever go away. Which means that when you have moments based upon the world that's going living around us, or choices that we've made, or circumstances that exist, or whatever, I mean, you've been in moments probably where you feel like, man, it doesn't matter what I do, I can't win. Have you had those moments? Everyone's had those moments. Right? And it, it can almost feel hopeless. For, for the Christ follower who's placed their hope and faith in Jesus, you are never hopeless, ever. You know your future. You know what's to come. You know that, that he says, one day you will be in my presence. You know that he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know that you are never alone. You are never without purpose. At any moment, you can make a decision to say, I'm going to do something that I shouldn't be doing, but that hope never leaves. 
When you wake up in the morning, regardless of what you've done, you have the hope of saying, Jesus has still redeemed me. And I can own that promise. There's, you know, that just to stop here and say, well, what have you guys been placing your hope in? I am overwhelmed constantly by the number of individuals who claim Christ and still feel hopeless. Or still want to live under the law, even though Jesus is come. It's 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 bizarre, right? When you think about it, like, I'll talk about me. Like, why, why, when I'm living with the hope of Jesus, do I still put myself under law, thinking that man, I've got to be good enough? Why do I still say, well, I don't deserve it? Well, of course you don't deserve it, but that's the beauty of the hope. It can't be earned, it can't be deserved, you don't. We own that. The hope is always there. It's always there. When I say then benefits come with it, he moves into this family analogy where he says, and because you are sons of God, you've been redeemed. To redeem those who are under law, verse 5, so that you might receive adoption of sons. You're brought into a family, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Benefits. Placing your hope fully in Jesus at that moment of salvation. I'm, I'm stopping putting my faith and trust in me and stop this whole law system, and I'm going to own the fact and, and put my faith in that Jesus lived that out for me and then paid my punishment for me and has redeemed me. When that happens, some things occur. One of those things is it says that we're adopted into the family of God. You're adopted into a family, meaning you aren't saved and redeemed and then set up on a shelf somewhere. Right? You are saved, redeemed, and then you are brought into the midst of a family of others who have been saved and redeemed and have the same hope that you do. It's this family analogy is is really beautiful. I mean, we as people long for community. We'll fight against it, but we know we need it. And we long for it. It's it's needed. And, and to say, okay, no matter where I stand in my family on this earth, I'm adopted into a family that's eternal. I'm adopted into a family that will always be my family. It's stronger than the blood bond of family. I mean, we all know that the blood, you know, people say the blood's thicker than water. That's not always true. Some of us have, or some of you have, horrible stories of the blood puts it thicker than water. Earthly family still still has the potential to, to, to be destroyed. Even in that scenario, the family of Jesus is always intact. Meaning, because your hope and faith is placed in Jesus and it's eternal. 
and you're adopted into his family, it means that in that moment you can never be unadopted. And that changes the game. You know, oftentimes people go, works are important. Good works are important. Yes, they are. They are really important. They're not important for your salvation, but they're important in the aspect of saying, I want to live a life that is honoring to Jesus as a Christ follower because I'm put on mission and I have this ability to participate in what he's doing. So how I live does represent Christ. That's important. It's so important. We don't just go, I mean, Paul talks about this all over his letters, right? Where he's like, just because we're adopted in the family and we can't be unadopted doesn't mean that we want to be the horrible kid. We still, because out of gratitude of what Jesus has done for us, because we love him, because he first loved us, because he says, this is how you should live, and this is what I've represented to you, and being more like Jesus, we have this responsibility as Christ followers to say, as a community, as a family, we want to look like a people who actually serve Christ. I thought it was a laughing analogy. I think it's a terrible analogy, but I'm going to roll with it anyway. But like, when you look at the head of a, of a family, that head is supposed to be dictating everything that's going on within the family. The family represents that head. And so if you've seen mafia movies, when an individual goes against the family, what happens? Bad stuff, right? Because you're not representing the family well. That's not how this works. In Christ, you're always part of the family. And you can choose to represent him clearly for a time. I think it's going to be uncomfortable. I think there's a passage in Scripture where it says that whoever stands at the door and knock, and if you'll open the door, I will come in. That passage of scripture often used for evangelistic purposes, but it's taken out of context. That was written to the church. It was written to the individuals who were believers, but were choosing to not represent the family well. And he's saying, hey, at any point, because of the hope of Jesus, I just want you to know, like, I'm sitting at the door of your heart, and I'm knocking, and you can open this door, and I'm going to come in. You just have to sit down in. As an unbeliever, you don't have that ability. As a Christ follower, you do. You're adopted into a family. Then it says the Spirit, His Spirit comes and lives in us, meaning you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within every Christ follower, giving us the ability to live out what Jesus asks us to do. So we tap into that. It's, it's not only we're adopted into a family. It's crazy when you process it. He comes. He dies for us. He, he, he represents us. He pays the penalty for us. He adopts us into family. And then he gives us his own spirit so that we can actually live out the rule of the family that he's given us. And where I process this over and over is like, well, what's my part in this? And it's really nothing. 
I didn't, I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't pray the Holy Spirit in. The Holy Spirit was given to me, and it's the Holy Spirit's grace and power of the Holy Spirit that actually allows me to live out a life as a Christ follower. It's not me, it's him. It's all him. He gets all the glory. Why? Because he's the one that brings all the hope. So we have passages in Scripture of disciples where Jesus is like, if you want to follow me, you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and then follow me. What is he saying? Well, yeah, I created you. You have great gifts that I've given you, your personality I've created. However, there's going to be a lot of things in you that need to die, and you need to have a spirit to move. The more we engage the spirit and the family, the more we about Jesus. It's pretty cool to think about. It's, it's a privilege. Only that that he says, the spirit allows us to look at God in front of the front. Meaning, as a Christ follower who has been adopted into the family, you can see God as your father. You can cry out to God as father, daddy. It's personal. There's no separation. You, you don't have to go through an intermediary to talk to your father. It's not much of a family scenario if I say, okay, I know that I'm adopted as a son, but in order for me to communicate with the head of the family, I've got to go through other people. There's no relationship there. Because the Spirit lives in you, you have access to the Father. Anytime you want. Right now, if you want. Or... You're my dad, and you're my father. You, you are here, and all of the things that we view a perfect father being, a provider, a protector, an encourager, a rebuker. I think one of the things we do in this one is we tend to project the inabilities and the insufficiencies of our earthly father onto Father God, and that's what we expect. But he's perfect. He redeems us, he adopts us, he brings us into his family, his adoption, he allows us to call him Father. And because you are sons of God, he sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, verse 7, so you are no longer a slave to the Son, and if a son, then an heir through God. He circles back around to this idea of the heir and the hope. And this is important. Too many Christ followers, I think, are attempting to live their life as if they're attempting to achieve victory instead of understanding that they're living in victory. That's why we go back to this living under the law. That's why we go back to this I'm, I've got a perform system. What we have to realize is that as he circles this back around and 
or as, as the sun or whoever, and you're waiting for that promise to come to fulfillment, and you're going, one day it's going to happen. What we realize as Christ followers is that, yes, things will change when Jesus comes back, but ultimately it's already happened. He says, I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. That's written in the present tense. We live as Christ follows in the shadow of the victory of Jesus. That's the hope. And that's why it's never failing. He's already defeated sin, Satan, and death for eternity. It's done. It's over. We live in that knowledge and truth. Meaning, as a Christ follower, you are living with the ability to just demonstrate a victorious existence or life. We don't do it. We don't have to create victory. It's done. We have to live in it. We have to live in the hope of understanding that it's already finished. It's there. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't, you will never be removed from the family. You're living in the family. I've just, I've tried to process, like, what would it look like for a church? I don't know, Church of East Boston? If the people who claimed Christ and understood that they were a family actually lived in the victory of Jesus. What would that look like? I think it would probably be the most contagious thing that a community would ever see. Well, you're reminding each other that you're not you're not living your life on a performance-based system. You're you're already in victory of Jesus. Jesus' love for you will never leave you. He's already shown that. It, yes, we encourage each other to do better, but not for the sake of family involvement or preventing family estrangement. It's for the sake of saying we are united together as one victorious unit in the body of Jesus as a family. And this is where Paul will bring in things like, and you've been given different gifts, and each person needs to use those gifts. Why? Because we're living in this victorious time of knowing that Jesus is right. There's not a lot of hope if we say, hey, use those gifts, but we're not really sure if he's right yet. He's already right. That's, this is where joy comes from. It, Joy is ultimately the ability to have peace, hope, love, regardless of the circumstance that we're in. It's the constant reminder that regardless of your circumstance, you have been redeemed by Jesus and you are in his family. That's joy. This is why when somebody says, man, you stole my joy, I'm like, then your joy is placed in the wrong thing. Because nobody can steal true joy in Christ. It's impossible. Because it's not based on us. It's also how Scripture tells us it's the joy of the Lord that becomes our strength. 
a lot of times when I'm feeling rich, and not necessarily physical, but maybe spiritually rich, one of the things that somebody in my family were asking, or I would ask myself, and I was speaking with you, is how's your joy? If the joy of the world is my strength, and I'm weak, then it would tell me I'm probably lacking joy. What am I lacking joy in? Have I brought myself back to some kind of like performance-based system in my life? Or am I holding others to that? Have I have I allowed the circumstances of the sin cursed world and the circumstances that I find myself in to overshadow the joy that I'm supposed to be living in and the victory of Jesus constantly? You see how we how we respond to the hope of who Jesus is and what he's done is in direct correlation to how joyful we will be and how joyful we are is in direct correlation to how we will live for Christ. Your strength is based in it and how other people view you is based in it. The, the, a lot of failures that I will make is when I am lacking joy, lacking strength, and what somebody sees in me is not a pure representation of who Jesus actually is. So now I'm misrepresenting him. And you know what I'm telling them? I don't know if what I believe is really any different than maybe the hope that I have is in this, being as strong as the hope that you have. When I'm living my life grounded in the joy and the hope of Jesus, that becomes contagious to people. They long for it. And it doesn't mean that you're just running around, throwing your hands in the air, laughing and giggling all the time and following Jesus. It means that you're grounded in the victory of who Jesus is. You're not attempting to achieve it. And that no matter what goes on around you, it's Jesus. No matter what's taken from you, no matter how much hardship you go through, it's Jesus. So we're living in the joy of Jesus. But as we enter this Christmas season, I think one of the, the huge questions that we have to ask as people, whether you're a Christ follower or you're just somebody who's going, man, I'm trying to figure this whole thing out, is, is there true joy in your life that can never be removed? Is, are you living in the power of that joy? Is Jesus actually, are you living in the, the knowledge that Jesus has already won? Or are you constantly bringing yourself back under the law that Jesus came to abolish and fulfill? Abolish is what? Trouble word. Fulfill. So that you don't have to. Or are you just pouring that back on you? Here's another question. Are you pouring law back on the others? And are you setting expectations for others to actually live under the law when we're free from it? Because that'll change relationships. I know I'm free from it, but I'm going to hold you accountable to live under it. And sometimes the law that we're asking people to live under isn't even the law of God, it's the law that we've created. You've got to live under my system of law. Okay? 
I don't know. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's saying to you in the room, but I would. I, I think asking these questions is really important. So I'm going to finish this one. We're not going to sing a song. So we're going to sing Tony's voice. Okay. Um, if you're in this room today, and you define your life as you look at it across the board as hopeless. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, then your hope isn't grounded in the victory of Christ. If that's the overwhelming emotion or definition of your life, it's just hopeless. It doesn't seem to matter what I do, I can't win. And that's constant. But it's not being grounded in who Jesus is. And what you need to do is start trusting in this performance base and put your faith and trust in Jesus. And you can do that today. I mean, you can, I would encourage you to talk to somebody. You can talk to me for every week. You don't have to. It certainly does not need to be me. And just turn to the person next to you asking if they know Jesus and they say, yes, can we have a conversation? There's there's a ton of people in this room who would have a conversation with you about Jesus. But I promise you this, until you do that, you're going to be living in this constant cycle of searching for the next thing that's going to bring you hope, and it's too going to fail you. For the church, how's your joy? Are you living in it? Are you attempting to create victory or living in the victory that's already occurred? Do circumstances rob you of your joy? Has that come out of your mouth before? Man, I had a, a guy on some way in my life and my wife robs me of my joy. And I'm like, ooh. There's some issues here. Hmm? What's your joy grounded in? Are you contagious? The answer is yes. What are you passing on? Are you passing on the joy and the strength of Jesus? Or are you passing on, yeah, I know Jesus, but I know my life, it looks hopeless. And what I represent to you is no different than the person that doesn't know Jesus. What needs to change? Jesus says, but then I said, if you don't knock, stop there. Whatever it is that you're putting your hope in faith and trusting to try to produce joy, if you know Christ, it's Christ. You already have it. And here's the kicker He didn't move, you did. And that's a beauty, a beautiful, beautiful truth to acknowledge. He's always there. He'll never leave you or forsake you. You always have joy in Jesus. So if that's the case, and you're not sensing it or feeling it, you're in a situation, it's like, man, I feel like I'm praying, my prayers are just hitting the ceiling. The first thing is to acknowledge that he hasn't moved. I've moved, so now I just need to move back. What does it look like? 